Today we are talking about the cross. The cross. It's a word that is familiar and revered all over the world. We put crosses inside church sanctuaries. We put crosses on the outside of church buildings. Some churches are even built literally in the shape of a cross. If you drive along I-70 towards Columbus near Richmond, Indiana, you'll see this huge white cross. We put crosses at graveyards. Perhaps you've driven along the highway and seen a small little memorial in a ditch with little crosses that mark the place where an accident happened and someone died. Crosses are associated with grief. But we also celebrate the cross. If you're a Christian, you know that we sing about it. We say things like, I'll cling to the old rugged cross. We, we, we make jewelry in the shape of, of cross and we wear it. Some of you may even have a tattoo in the shape of a cross. Here's what's important for you to be reminded about today, that the cross is the symbol for the Christian faith and sometimes we take this symbol for granted. You see, the cross is the intersection of so many truths. The cross is the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. It's the location of divine wrath and forgiveness. It marks the place of the death of the eternal son of God. It's the darkest moment that then leads to the brightest hope. It's the place where the devil thinks he wins only to ultimately learn that he actually lost. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross is the turning point of God's redemptive plan. The cross opens the door for forgiveness. It provides the means of atonement for sin. It ends the separation between God and mankind. The cross is a brutal, nasty instrument by which God demonstrates his love for us. John writes in chapter 19 in such a way to help you feel the weight of this moment you know the rest of the story and we'll celebrate it next weekend with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but today I want you just to live in this text with me for two reasons. First, if you're a Christian, I want you to live in this text and I want you to be freshly stunned at what is here. I want you to feel your heart beat with new affection that there's one thing that you know and believe, that Jesus died for sinners and that was me. And if you're not a Christian, Oh, friend, I want you to fully understand what the cross means with the hope that you would see what it is all about, would turn from your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It may just be that this virus and the unusually challenging environment that we're in is the very means by which God delivers your soul. So today we're going to look at this text through three different portraits that are ironic. We're going to see a cursed king, we're going to see a poor king, and we're going to see a defeated king. Words that shouldn't go together. Cursed and king, they don't fit. Poor and king, don't fit. Defeated king, don't fit. And yet, in God's plan, they fit perfectly in terms of what God is attempting to accomplish. And then we'll draw some conclusions at the end. So first, a cursed king. 
We left our text last week in verse 16 where we learned that Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. John is blunt and simple in his language. He says, so he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. Remember last week I showed you that there was a tension between Pilate and the religious leaders. Pilate was looking for any way to get out of the situation and the Jewish leaders were looking for any way not just to kill him, Jesus but looking for any way that they could crucify him. Why? Why crucify him? It relates to what it means to be a cursed king. You see, crucifixion was not just a horrific way to die. Crucifixion sent a message. It was a form of imperial terrorism. It was a brutal method of execution meant to send a message. John Stott, in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ, says that crucifixion was probably the most cruel method of execution because it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture was accomplished. The person would suffer for days in full display of all who came near. Crucifixion as a practice was not invented by the Romans. They borrowed it and improved upon it. And it was used for convicted criminals of capital crimes. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. It was reserved for the other and the Jews had a nasty history with crucifixion. A Roman general in 4 BC named Varus crucified 2,000 Jews because of their rebellion. Death by crucifixion came slowly. You see, after the criminal's hands were fastened to this cross beam, either by nails or by ropes, they were hoisted onto a vertical beam and then their feet nailed to a small platform for their feet, not in order to provide stability for them, but rather to maximize their pain. With a badly beaten body and outstretched arms, every breath was difficult and created enormous pain as pressure was placed on the wounds in one's hands or feet. In the 1960s, some researchers investigated the physical effects of crucifixion and they tied volunteers by their wrists in a crucifixion sort of posture and monitored their breathing and heart rate. And within six minutes, these volunteers had difficulty breathing, their heart rate doubled, and their blood pressure plummeted. I could give you more details, but you get the point. Crucifixion was a brutal way to die. But there's more here. We look at the text and it says they took Jesus and he went out, verse 17, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. These two others were not just petty thieves, they were likely insurrectionists. Crucifixion was a way that Rome said, don't mess with us. We're in charge. Crucifixion was a way that said Rome is superior and ultimate. Crucifixion is a way that the Roman 
authorities communicated to the Jewish masses, you're not like us. Don't mess with the power of Rome. What's interesting is that Pilate puts a placard over Jesus' head, verse 19. He wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Remember, this is a statement that Pilate has already used related to these Jewish leaders. He keeps asking them, is this your king? Shall I kill your king? What do I do with your king? So when he hoists Jesus up on the cross and he puts a placard above his head, including in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, somebody went to a lot of trouble to be sure anybody who spoke any language coming into the city of Passover knew, this is what we think of your king. It's a political statement. It's an imperial statement, which is why the Jews who read the inscription, such that the chief priests said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. They're, they're still trying to negotiate with Pilate to posture this Jesus in a way that helps them to maintain their standing in the community. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Why did they want Jesus to be crucified? because of what the book of Deuteronomy says. You see, it's not enough for them just to have Jesus dead. They need Jesus delegitimized. They don't just need him to be silent. They need him to be shamed. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You see, this is why they wanted Jesus to be crucified. They not only wanted his teaching to be stopped, but they wanted Jesus to be viewed as one who was cursed by God. The Messiah, by definition, is the chosen one. So the chosen one can't be the cursed one unless you don't understand what's really going on. They have no idea that this king, the son of God, is there to become the curse of all those who would put their trust in him. Jesus is bearing the curse of sin. John wants you to remember that in chapter three, he said this, Jesus said this, as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this cursed king creates the path for people to be saved. This text is full of irony. A cursed king, here's the second one. A poor king. Kings aren't poor, kings are rich. And here is Jesus, stripped naked and loses everything. It's a sad and dark picture. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Apparently there was four soldiers who were standing guard over Jesus. They took his clothing, likely a belt, a head covering, sandals, and a robe. And each of them got a piece. They got something. Think of this like a souvenir or plunder. Soldiers taking it for their own. But there was this thing that was left. There is his tunic, which was 
an internal garment underneath the rest of his clothes that was meant for protection and comfort. The tunic was left, and so they cast lots for it. And here we see something important. Verse 24 Verse 23 says the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John throws this theme in, which runs throughout this particular narrative. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's really important for so many reasons. First, it's important because it's from Psalm 22, a lament psalm, a psalm that you're familiar with. It's the psalm that Jesus, is, that Jesus quotes when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some scholars think that Jesus on the cross quoted all of Psalm 22, and John sees here in this moment the fulfillment of what Psalm 22 says, that they would cast lots for Jesus' garments. Psalm 22 says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And John throws this reference to Psalm 22 in here and he will throughout the rest of our narrative in order to demonstrate something really, really important. And it's really important not only in this text, but it's important in our day right now. And it's this, that when the darkest moment of Jesus' life is playing out, the sovereign hand of God is at work. This day is awful, but it is not a day that is without hope. The scene that we see in John chapter 19 is painful, but it is not pointless. It is a moment where the sovereign hand of God is at work. Friends, I hope that's comforting to you to remember. In Psalm 22, that very lament psalm, it says things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that psalm also says, oh my God, I cry to you, and yet you are holy, and you are fathers trusted, and you delivered them. So this moment at Golgotha shows us that there are parallel paths that, 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 that run in the world that while Jesus is being crucified, the sovereign plan of God is at work. And can I just remind you, that's not just true at Calvary, that's not just true at Golgotha, that's true in every situation in life, that no matter what's happening in the world, that there's a sovereign plan of God underneath, and we don't always get to see what God is doing, but the Bible tells us that God is always at work. And if your heart ever begins to doubt or wonder, is that true? Is God really going to use even this situation that we're in culturally? Is he gonna use this for some good purpose according to his will? Friend, you only need to go back and look at the cross and realize that in the moment, I'm sure John and the rest of the disciples saw what happened to Jesus as an absolute disaster, but underneath it is the sovereign hand of God. They just don't know the rest of the story. And you don't know the rest of the story. I don't know the rest of the story of my life. But one thing I do know, that God is the God of the rest of the story. Jesus is stripped of everything. He's a poor king. He even experiences the poverty of relationships. According to verse 25, standing there by the cross were his mother, his four people, his mother, his mother's sister, Another woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, a woman 
who was a faithful follower of Jesus after Jesus delivered her from demon possession. By the way, this woman, Mary Magdalene, in John's gospel, is the first person to see the empty tomb. It's such a statement of grace that Mary would be the first one to herald the news. The grave is empty. Here is Jesus stripped of everything. Verse 26, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, it's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So Jesus has no possessions. He has no honor. His life is fading. His body bruised. His family relationships are coming to an end. Over his head hangs this sign in mockery of him, king of the Jews. And from a casual observer, what they see with their eyes, Jesus is a tragic failure. But the New Testament helps us to interpret this moment. He is not a poor king. Philippians 2 says this, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus' poverty was part of God's plan to redeem the world. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So the world sees Jesus as a poor king, and if that's all they see, they don't have any idea what it is that Jesus is doing. He's a cursed king, he's a poor king, and then the text shows us he's a defeated king. A defeated king. Kings wield power. And yet here is Jesus, the one who suffers in order to fulfill God's plan. Here is the suffering Savior who provides atonement for those who would put their trust in him. This is the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place. He came in order to give his life as a ransom for many. And the effect is, that verse 28 tells us that Jesus now knows that all things are being fulfilled, that everything is now finished. Again, to fulfill the scriptures, he says, I thirst. This is a reference to either one of two passages. We're not exactly sure. Psalm 22, again, that lament psalm, says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. So John, thinking back of this moment, realizes the parallels between Psalm 22 and other psalms and what's happening in this moment. He sees the golden thread of God's sovereignty even in the midst of this dark, dark moment. 
It could also be a reference to Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Regardless, John wants you to know what's happening here is not by accident. Jesus is given a sponge soaked with sour wine. This is not the same thing that was offered to him as he was making his way to the cross, a pain-dulling drink that was offered to him according to Mark chapter 15 and verse 23 that he had rejected previously. This is a wine that was sort of reserved for the soldiers and they put it on a sponge and they lifted it up on a hyssop branch or a collection of hyssop branches And what's remarkable about this moment, and it seems as though John is giving you a tell here that hyssop was the very plant that was dipped in blood in the Old Testament Passover moment as people painted the doorposts of their house in order for the death angel to pass over. And it's as though John wants you to see the parallel of a Passover lamb who's being offered sustenance as God is about to redeem people through his sacrifice. And then it happens. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus willingly gives up his spirit. John wants you to see that Jesus is obedient to the very end. Everyone else in this moment just saw him die. John and the women who were gathered there, no doubt, were deeply conflicted. No no doubt, they must have wondered, how how is this part of the plan? Here is Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, the one who raised the dead, the one who healed people. They saw him do this. Their teacher, who spoke with words of authority, and there hangs his lifeless body. The breathing has stopped. He's limp. He's dead. Meanwhile, the Passover, in a crazy twist of irony and divine providence, is still happening. So verse 31 says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that that might be taken away. A cruel reality was that they would then take a sledgehammer and break the legs of the criminals so they could no longer breathe so that they would be quickly killed. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then this is from John. This is John inserting himself into this. This is John speaking to you, the reader. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved, trying to reach into your heart. Here's what he says. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. And John pleads with you. 
that you also may believe. John says, I was there. I saw it. I write these things to you so you can know who he is, so that you can believe. He says, for these things took place, place that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced over and over. John sees the crazy, awful death of Jesus along with the plan of a sovereign God in order to redeem people. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. Joseph is an influential man. You don't get to ask Pilate for the body of a convicted prisoner without some level of social standing. And before you throw too much shade on him for the secretly for fear of the Jews, by him going to Pilate and asking for the body, he just identified himself as a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus, remember John chapter three, who had come to him secretly in the night, brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, for most of us, that number of weight, of pounds, of Spices wouldn't create any type of additional thought for us. But if I said to you, there was a funeral last week at Crown Cemetery in Indianapolis and there was a 21-gun salute, you'd know exactly what kind of person was buried. You'd know that a soldier was buried. The 21-gun salute is a representative of something else. So too in this text, the 75 pounds, this is the weight of spices that was used for king. So Joseph takes him and buries him in a garden. We presume that it's a family garden. Most crucified criminals were buried in mass graves. You don't take a convicted, crucified person and bring him into your family graveyard. That's shameful. But what does Joseph of Arimathea do? He does exactly that because he believes that Jesus was more than just some crucified criminal and Nicodemus buries him because he knows he is a king. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was at close hand, they laid him there. Every step along the way in this journey is filled with all sorts of irony. The world saw him as a defeated king. And in this moment, it sure looks like it, doesn't it? Even though when he died, the earth shook, the temple curtain was torn, and dead people came out of the tombs, most people saw him as just some crazy prophet who got on the wrong side of the religious establishment and the Roman imperial government. But in the middle of the darkness of this scene, John helps us to see this tragedy as what it really is. It's a moment that is dark, and yet three days later will flip 
with hope. Next Sunday, we're gonna talk about the rest of the story. Three days later, Jesus emerges triumphant from the grave. So this is not over. The cursed king will be given a name above every name. The poor king will reclaim everything that belongs to him. And the defeated king will be declared as victorious. But right now, the, the story is dark. So I started this message with an explanation and maybe a reminder that the cross is easy to take for granted. It's a familiar symbol. I'm sure you're acquainted with it. And yet there's an important message that is behind it. And that's why John writes these words as he wants us to understand what's behind the symbol of the cross. And he writes this for a very specific reason. He writes this so that you will believe So what lessons do we take from this text? Let me, let me give you three. They're simple, but they are so incredibly important. Number one, this text shows us that sin is horrible. We look at the horrific experience and the cruelty of the crucifixion, and it's a reminder that this kind of sacrifice was only necessary because of our collective rebellion in the world. The cross is the reminder that the world is tragically broken. And the cross isn't the only thing we take for granted. We easily take for granted how broken and in need our world really is. Every conflict, every broken relationship, every addiction, every scam, Every sinful word, every sickness, every virus, every death is a constant reminder that we human beings are not ultimate. We need help more so than we even realize. Sin is horrible. Secondly, this text also tells us that Jesus loved us. I think this is the crazy thing about the message of the Bible, that sin is so dark, and yet Jesus loves us so deeply. John's gospel begins with these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the message of the Bible is that we move from the cross to redemption. You move from what you were to what you can be because of God's grace. And so the cross then is not merely a symbol of brutal execution, friend. The cross is a symbol for how much Jesus loves you. The death of Jesus didn't happen by accident. He didn't suffer this simply at the hands of the Roman authorities and the Jewish establishment because he was out of control. Jesus was absolutely on mission and his mission was to love you like this. It's unbelievable. And so if you're a Christian, can you just be reminded, this is how much Jesus loved you? And so if you look around and you see difficulties or challenges or you experience anxiety in this season, I understand it, I'm there with you. Can I just remind you that if Jesus loved you in the cross, he can easily help you through something like a virus. 
If Jesus loved you in the worst moment of your past, he can help you in order to see the beauty of your future, him being there every step of the way. And Jesus sends his church out on mission and says, you go and I am with you wherever you go. This text is a call for us to know that Jesus loves us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, can I just tell you, God loves you. Friend, Jesus died for you. And it may be that during this season that your heart is awakened to really important spiritual questions. And can I just encourage you, more important than surviving and making it through this virus moment in our world's history is thinking and considering, why do you live? And what really matters? And what's underneath your life? And what do you do about your relationship with your creator? Sin is horrible. Jesus loved us. Here's the third one. God is in control. Throughout this text, John keeps anchoring the biblical account in statements like, according to the scriptures, or that it might be fulfilled. He wants us to understand there is nothing that's happening here by accident. At the time, everybody no doubt looked at the cross. They saw it as a complete failure, but underneath this cross was a divine plan, a gracious strategy to open the floodgates of redemption. God is on a mission to rescue people from themselves. And so as dark and as bleak and as disastrous as this moment looked in this moment, God is fulfilling his plan. And so friend, if you're here watching this live stream today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you feel the looming darkness of these days, I wonder if it might be today that you could look to Jesus and say, you know, I believe. And I want to receive you and to become a follower of yours today. Throughout time and millennia, people have looked to the cross of Jesus and said, I looked to him and believed. So here is the cruel cross that shows us the mercy of God. Here is the horrific cross that then shows us how to find hope. This is the cross of Christ. It's how God saves us. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word today to bring people to saving faith in your son. I pray that Christians would be strengthened today knowing that this is how much you loved us and that we would be encouraged to faithfully follow you through these hard and challenging days. We thank you that this text is the foundation of why we live. So grant us faith, hope, and courage to live out our lives on mission, to follow Jesus, to follow him faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.